You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Bloodgroove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madame Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about Scotland and the situation in which they found themselves in the late 1600s. Scotland was broke. They were suffering through a series of famines, and England's war with France was only exasperating those issues. We also introduced the man who had a plan to do something about all of these problems. His name was William Patterson. Patterson was an interesting person, especially in the context of our show. Born in Scotland, he grew up in Bristol, but at 17 he moved to Nassau in the Bahamas. Now That was almost certainly to oversee his family's interest in the slave trade. But... While in Nassau, he almost had to have interacted with elements that people at the time would have seen as less desirable. 
You know, it would have been a minor scandal for a good upstanding slave trader to be seen cavorting with pirates. If you remember back when we talked about La Nuestra Señora and all of that Spanish silver, both Sir John Narborough and William Phipps used Nassau as a base of operations in their respective searches for that sunken Spanish silver. That was in the early 1680s. And it was right about this time, right about the time that so many pirates were returning from the Pacific adventures, that William Patterson finally returned to Britain. When William Phipps arrived in England with all of that Spanish silver and the brothers who blown started the Bank of England, guess who else was at the table with them? If you guessed William Patterson, you would be right. Patterson was instrumental in the formation of the Bank of England, and then he turned right around and did it again in his homeland. He was one of the founders of the Bank of Scotland and the Company of Scotland. At which point William Patterson bailed out Lionel Wafer and published his book, as well as playing a role in seeing William Dampier's book published. Now, all of this could just be coincidence, just the events of a man's life, but when you pull back, when you look at the big picture, it really begins to look like a web of interconnected plots and plans. Like a huge scheme that William Patterson spent his life concocting and then seeing through. And you know, why not? Nothing he was doing, aside from some of his alleged dealings with pirates, was illegal. It's not some kind of conspiracy theory to suggest that William Patterson had a plan. He did. He had a big plan. And in 1698, William Patterson was going to see his plan fulfilled. This is episode 266, The Darien Scheme. It might be fun to speculate about what Patterson's endgame may have been in all of this. You know, was he planning to set himself up as a little dictator in the Americas? That's the kind of thing that men often dreamed of in the colonial era, but ultimately we'll never know. His schemes in America were not going to succeed. In fact, they were going to go down as one of the all-time great failures of history. And the reasons really aren't complicated. The biggest problem that Patterson and the Darien scheme faced was the very premise of it. Now, you know, the bones weren't terrible, establish a colony in Panama, build a canal, and the canal was an important aspect here. Much like the modern Panama Canal, it would allow shipping to pass through Panama to cut out the entirety of South America on worldwide voyages. It would have allowed Scotland to dominate the trade between Asia and America and Europe. And that could have worked. Obviously, the Panama Canal was a success much later on. Had it worked, had Patterson's scheme played out the way he pictured, the whole course of world history would have changed. Scotland would almost certainly have become a major player in worldwide trade and empire. The United Kingdom may never have united. The British Empire would have continued to be the English Empire and would have had a major competitor on her own island. The problem, though, of this entire scheme was the location that Patterson chose. Darien is not a hospitable land. 
It's a swampy, unforgiving place. You know, Darien was home to crocodiles and alligators at the time. Bull sharks mated and congregated in very large numbers in the estuaries between her rivers and the sea. Venomous snakes could hide in any pile of brush or drop down from a tree branch. And speaking of dangerous animals living in trees, what about jaguar or puma? What about those smaller animals that also posed a threat? What about spiders? You've got tarantulas as big as dinner plates. You've got what they call wandering spiders and black widows and recluses. And of course, the Goliath bird-eater. All of those were threats to life and health. But they weren't the biggest threat. The biggest threat was the smallest. That would, of course, be the mosquito. Mosquito carry a host of dangerous and often deadly diseases. You've got Zika and Dengue fever and West Nile virus. And of course, one of the big ones, malaria. Now, not all of those were well understood by the medical science of the late 1600s. Some might not even have migrated to humans yet. The only one that had actually been recognized was malaria, but even malaria was not what really terrified prospective colonists in the New World, and especially places like Panama. That was yellow fever. It was particularly dangerous to people from the colder parts of the world who had never developed any sort of natural immunity to the disease, and still is today, although of course we have a vaccine. It was a disease that could affect as many as 80% of any group that came to the New World. Now, for most of those, it would be a simple, short disease, headache, nausea, occasional vomiting, but for roughly 50% of those who contracted the disease it would move on to a second and much more dangerous stage. It would affect the liver, which caused jaundice, which turns you yellow, hence yellow fever. But from the liver, it would move on to the stomach and the intestines. All of the gastrointestinal tract would be affected and even begin to bleed. Vomit would often be speckled with blood and even stomach lining. That's why the Spanish call yellow fever... Vamito Negro. Yellow fever prominent in swampy, mosquito-ridden areas could make new colonies a nightmarish hellscape. So Darien was an excellent place to build a colony, am I right? It's not like William Patterson was ignorant of any of this, though. Lionel Wafer and William Dampier were both very clear in all of their warnings about the dangers present in this region. They both talked about all of the men who died in their crossings of the Isthmus. Wafer especially goes into detail about all of the dangerous snakes, the sulfurous air, all of the diseases. Remember, he spent some time with the Guna people. Even if we go back to William Patterson's probable original inspiration for this whole scheme, the Buccaneers of America devotes an entire chapter to the pirates under Henry Morgan trekking through the jungle and... They're pretty clear. You know, it sucks. Nobody in their right mind would want to do that, but William Patterson said, that's it, that's the place I'm gonna go. He ignored all of the warnings and even convinced the board of directors of both the Bank of Scotland and the Company of Scotland that that was where the future of their nation lie. 
Patterson painted pictures of deep, defensible harbors, of groves of abundant fruit trees stretching all the way to the horizon, of fish that could feed entire families, and of coconuts and cattle grazing on wide-open pastures. For a Scotland that was currently starving, you know, it did really sound like a paradise. Not to mention there were all of those gold mines that were, yes, currently occupied by Spanish garrisons, but still rich with gold. And of course we should not forget the Channel, a canal that would carry shipping from the Pacific to the Caribbean, a scheme that, if it had succeeded, would have made everybody involved filthy rich. There was even a ballad, popular in Scotland at this time, that apparently Patterson had nothing to do with. A ballad that literally sang his praises. It reads, Come rouse up your heads, come rouse up, anon. Think of the wisdom of old Solomon, and heartily join with our own Patterson to fetch home Indian treasures. Solomon sent afar for gold. Let us do now as he did of old. Wait but three years for a hundredfold of riches and all pleasures. Sounds pretty good, right? So the company opened up the ledger to investment. They called their investors, in this case, subscribers. They were buying a stake in what was being called New Caledonia. Caledonia, of course, being the Roman name for Scotland. But everybody in the nation who had even a little capital to invest was throwing their money at the company. Private landowners, lords, English investors, a lot of those, they all chipped in. There were shopkeepers that were buying in, mostly through their respective guilds. But there were bigger entities as well, like the cities of both Edinburgh and Glasgow. They invested £3,000 each. In the end, the company raised over £400,000 sterling. That was double Scotland's GDP at the time. In modern American dollars, that would translate to somewhere north of $100 billion. Now that's great for Patterson and for the company and for, you know, the prospective scheme in Darien, but not for Scotland. When that much money suddenly disappears from the economy of a country as small as Scotland in less than a month... A recession was inevitable. But not to worry. Remember, all you have to do is wait just three years, and we're all going to be rich. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Before they set out, there was quite a bit of drama surrounding the lead-up to the expedition. It's not really important to our story, but it was mostly about Patterson himself. Now that he'd sold the nation on his idea and taken in all of their excess capital, people began to look more and more closely at Patterson and his clique of associates, and they didn't like what they saw. His closest friends and his lieutenants tended to be a gang of cutthroats, really. Not pirates, but mostly old soldiers that had been involved in acts of horrific brutality or bribery or other unsavory acts. They all had some sort of criminal history that made them suspicious. Patterson himself and his plans were scrutinized and questioned, and as the date for their departure neared, Patterson was pushed out of both the banks of England and Scotland. It was becoming more and more clear that his entire reputation was hinging on New Caledonia. Still, it was a promising mission. They'd gathered five ships, the St. Andrew, the Caledonia, the Unicorn, the Dolphin, and the Endeavour. And that's quite a Scottish list there. St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. The unicorn is Scotland's national animal, and of course the Caledonia. I'm surprised they didn't name one of the ships, you know, the Thistle. The voyage itself was supposed to be one of complete secrecy. Officially, no one outside of the board of directors was supposed to know where their destination was. Even the captains of the ships were given cryptic instructions. Each of the captains was given three parcels wrapped in wax paper. After setting out, they were to open the first, which told them to go to Madeira. Once they reached that island, they would open the second, which told them to go to the Golden Isle. That's off the coast of Panama, and was home to one of the great pirate councils of all time. At the Golden Isle, they would open the third, which told them to go to the Gulf of Darien. It's a fine enough system for keeping a secret, but... They didn't really have a secret. In reality, everybody knew where they were going. Even in England. John Locke was ordered to write a report on what the Scots may have been up to, and in doing so he consulted both William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, and John Locke figured it out pretty quickly. When he submitted his report, the Lords of Trade thought, you know, huh, not a bad plan. I think we'll take it. When the Scottish fleet set sail in July 1698, the English were already preparing an expedition of their own, intended for the Golden Isle. After setting out, the Scottish fleet's last stop before hitting the Atlantic Ocean was to pick up William Patterson and his family. Over the previous couple of years, Patterson's star had dimmed quite a bit, thanks to all of that drama we mentioned and an accusation of embezzlement that sounds pretty credible, Patterson didn't even have a rank, a position, in New Caledonia. Instead, he was titled a volunteer. 
He was barely able to secure a place for himself on this voyage that he had envisioned. But he did. The fleet, though, after setting out, met with problems almost immediately. There were choppy seas and a storm, and some of the people on board those ships below decks said that those first days at sea were the worst they had ever experienced in their entire life. But of course, that would only be the worst in their life so far. When the fleet put in at Madeira, they were... conspicuous. The world was still at war, after all, and any fleet of five large ships would make everyone stop and say, you know, who are you, and where are you going? To which the officers from this fleet could only respond, oh, it's a confidential matter. And that would raise even more eyebrows. But while at Madeira, Portuguese and Spanish spies figured out everything before the wine had even been loaded on board, they knew that these Scottish ships were sailing for Panama. Now, Darien was not occupied by Spain. Darien was, thanks to all of those hostile elements, and of course the Guna people, it was the gap between two of Spain's largest viceroyalties, but Spain still considered it theirs. Any incursion by a foreign power would be met with hostility. Now, Patterson's big plan involved a close alliance with the Guna people. And when the fleet did arrive on the 30th of November, 1698, they did meet with some of the Guna watching the coastline who seemed friendly and amenable. The half a dozen or so Guna who came out to their ships to meet them well, they seemed to have kind of an enemy-of-my-enemy-is-my-friend mentality. You know, they knew English speakers fairly well and knew that they did not usually care for the Spanish, so there wasn't any overt hostility. But of course, these were just scouts. They didn't have the authority to make any kind of treaty, and they didn't even speak enough English to really communicate with the men on board. The Scottish expedition had brought people who spoke Portuguese, French, Spanish, Italian, but... Nobody who understood the Guna language. It's surprising to me that Patterson did not secure Lionel Wafer for this voyage. Later, exploratory expeditions to the region by England would employ both Wafer and his former shipmate, Basil Ringrose. Wafer knew these people, he knew the land, he spoke the language. It would have been a boon for New Caledonia, but Patterson was unable to get him. Initially, though, upon their arrival, spirits were high. We have a diary from an anonymous author that gives us frequent looks into the mindset of the average colonist. That diarist wrote upon their arrival in New Caledonia, quote, The soil is rich, the air good and temperate, the water is sweet, and everything contributes to make it healthful and convenient. The product of the place, I mean the harbor and creeks hereabouts, is turtle, manatee, and a vast variety of very good small fish. The land afford monkeys, wild deer, Indian rabbits, wild hog, parrots of many kinds, parakeets, macaws, pelicans, and a hundred more birds we have got no name to. End quote. The author goes on for some time about the abundance of food in New Caledonia. It really did look like they had found paradise, and that they had chosen a perfect harbor. Today, their point of landfall is called Puerto Escoches, 
the Scottish harbor. But Puerto Escoches was not the perfect harbor it appeared to be. If the Scottish colonists had had access to Hugh Thomas's series of books on the Spanish Empire, on all of the colonization of Central America, they would have noticed a pattern and known better than to assume this was the harbor they thought it to be. More on that in a moment, though. First, the people had work to do. Their first morning there in Darien, the king of the Guna people came out to meet the leaders of the expedition. And that's actually someone we've met before, a long time ago. Do you remember King Goldencap of the Guna? He's the king that met with the first pirates to cross Darien back in 1681. Well, it's not him. King Goldencap had died in the intervening years, but it was his son. His name was Andreas, the king of the Guna. Back in 1681, he had been the guide appointed to the pirates who had led them, and a party of Guna warriors, to the fort at Santa Maria. He led the combined force of pirates and Guna in an attack on the fort there, an attack that rescued the many women that were being held captive by the Spanish, and then he led the Guna in a massacre of all surviving Spanish prisoners. Andreas was an old friend to the English-speaking people he knew to be enemies of Spain, so he was friendly toward the newcomers, and he spoke pretty good English, which was helpful here. He recited a long list of Englishmen with whom he was particularly friendly, all of whom were, you know, pirates. But I imagine the list impressed Patterson, who knew personally at least two of them and knew of all the rest. Now Andreas was a bit skeptical of these new, what is it, Scots? But he gave them permission to build a fort nonetheless, the very least a fort would aid him in his war against Spain. So that very morning, with the blessing of King Andreas, the people of this newfound Scottish colony held a ceremony on the shore, where they chanted, What should they do but sing his praise, who led us through this watery maze? They began unloading their cargo and building some rudimentary shelter. But then, just a few days later, the rain came. Among the very first people to get sick were the few clergymen they had with them. And those clergymen all, in just a few days, died. The colony had lost their spiritual leadership, and that's something they took seriously. So the leaders wrote a letter requesting replacements be sent. And they were going to send the dolphin back to Scotland with that letter to collect some supplies in addition to the replacement clergymen, but then the biggest problem they had yet faced became clearly apparent. The dolphin could not leave the harbor. The wind and the wave pushed her back and did so hard, so hard that the dolphin was wrecked upon the rocks. Okay, so that's not good. They can't leave. Maybe when the weather turns, maybe the tide will shift, you know, hopefully. It was scary, but everybody tried to keep a positive outlook. They were stuck here after all, so why fall into despair? But it was William Patterson who first acknowledged what everybody was realizing. He wrote that Darien, or at least the spot in Darien on which they had chosen to build, was, quote, a mere morass, neither fit to be fortified nor planted, nor intended for men to lie upon. They'd lost a full two months of work, 
but their people were getting sick and they had no proper shelter. So the settlement of New Caledonia moved up the coast a few miles. Now this time they did not begin with a few rudimentary huts. Instead, they began with the construction of a fort, Fort St. Andrew. It was a suitable fort to guard the harbor, but don't picture a large stone fortress. They had a few palisade walls and a tower on a nearby hill and a couple of batteries of guns. But that was fine for the time being. Once it was complete, they began building huts in what they decided to call New Edinburgh. Things weren't great. They were in a bad situation. Nobody denied it, but they were looking up. They had friends, and the local Native Americans, they had shelter and a fortress. King Andreas even went so far as to sign a formal treaty with the Scots and pledge an alliance against Spain. The inhabitants even began to prepare land to plant crops. But the lookouts up in that tower on the hill, well, they kept seeing ships pass by. Now, we know today who many of those ships were, but the colonists at the time did not. At first, they were English. Several of those were among that English fleet that had decided to follow the Scots to the Golden Isle. There were, of course, quite a few Spanish ships sprinkled in as well, but the real problem was the French. Now, they weren't all actually French ships, but they did sail under a French flag, mostly from Tortuga. They were privateers, little more than buccaneers. In fact, some of them were actually buccaneers, some of whom we've met before. See, those buccaneers, those brethren of the coast, had a long history of trading with and taking shelter with the Guna people. Darien had become something of a second home here on the Spanish main, a safe harbor away from the Spanish and their other enemies. But now it had been occupied by Scottish interlopers. The Scots had a lot of enemies out there and no idea what they were in for. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Infamous America, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Oh, boy.
fun in legend tonight.